0: Hello good evening and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, what to do if you come across a stranded dolphin, life after shipwreck for a ship's captain and the outgoing CEO of the Irish Sailing Association. In 1991, the government declared that all waters within the Irish Exclusive Economic Zone would be a whale and dolphin sanctuary. Since then, the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group has been at the forefront of research into these amazing animals. There have been a number of live dolphin strandings around the coast in recent months, including at Lahan in County Kerry, Killala and on the Eris Peninsula in County Mayo. Joanne McNicholas has been to the Irish Peninsula and she has this report.
1: I'm on Tarman Beach near Belmullet in County Mayo to find out about live dolphin strandings here, past and present.
2: My name is Gemma O'Connor. I'm the Live Stranding Network Coordinator for Irish Whale and Dolphin and I live here locally on the peninsula since around 2007. This place is a live stranding hotspot. So when I arrived here, I started realizing that there was dolphins, um, common dolphins, live stranding a lot in the inside of Blacksod Bay. And there was a lot of marine ball just living here at the time who would take care of it and look after them. So I learned a bit from them. But then when they all moved away, it fell to me. And um, I I took it on then and learned as much as I could about it and got, got really into it. And then I got great support from Irish Whale and Dolphin with advice and fundraising for equipment locally to assist. And there was a very big stranding here a couple of weeks ago. There was. It's ironic, on the 26th of October, we had 26 common dolphins live strand here inside the peninsula. Um, So Tarman Beach here behind us had 24 dolphins. And at the exact same time, there was two dolphins up in Ellie Bay. So probably all members of the same pod had come into the bay got confused by the topography and the shallow bays and maybe they were trying to head west or whatever but they all ended up cut out by a very high spring tide that day.
1: And I believe the bottlenose dolphins are much smarter. They they
2: are, I don't know, are they smarter in terms of intelligence but they, they know the area, they're a coastal species, bottlenose. So they have their, their roots, their favourite place to eat um, places that they hang out go for surf and they know this area really really well so they wouldn't if you had a bottlenose dolphin stranded in here you'd be quite worried about it there'd be something else going on it's, it's probably a sick dolphin but the common dolphins are mostly an offshore species so they're used to deep water so when they come in here they wouldn't realise that the tidal range in Tarman can go from like a 4 metre tide down to 0.9 of a metre in a very short time and they do get caught out. They do get confused, and they're quite healthy when they come in, which is which is interesting.
1: But yeah, the bottlenose knows no better. And it's true that it's generally younger dolphins that get caught out. Here, it's family groups. Um,
2: I've seen like pretty pretty large adults with worn teeth caught out alongside this year's calves. You know, tiny they're tiny. They're adorable little things. The calves that get caught out as well. They're, so it's a family family pods, family units. That can strand here en masse. So they're trying to make their way out to the Atlantic. When they get caught out, we've noticed here that they're they're trying to head west a lot. And where we are, it's only it's less than two kilometres across the peninsula to deep um, deep water of the west coast.
1: What do you do when you actually find the dolphins here when they've stranded? What's the next step? So first thing we do is
2: um, is stabilize them. Anyone that's on their side, um, I get them all rolled upright, and then you dig trenches or holes under their pectoral fins, which are the fins that stick out the side. That takes the pressure off them because it's quite painful for those fins to be kind of stretched outwards as, as they're lying down. Um, and then we keep them cool because they will overheat really, really fast. And overheating is one is is the major killer of them, especially in the summer. Um, the other thing is to keep the area really calm and really quiet. Usually I try and get like one or two people max per dolphin. Because if you have crowds of people and they're all pointing at it and talking about it. And you know it's a quite exciting for people too that have never seen a dolphin up close. Um, so I get everybody to work in a whisper. Really quiet, slow movements. Let the dolphin see you at all times. And then they start to, they start to calm down. Some of them, you know, they begin to trust you. Um, and keeping them cool keep wetting that that dorsal fin the the tail flukes the pectoral fins keep wetting those because they're the heat exchangers that's how they shed their heat Um, and then you cover their skin with light coloured wet sheets you can use towels if that's all you have to hand we use them here because this is a windy area so it's kind of handy to
1: have them but in the summer sheets are better light coloured wet sheets and in the event that somebody is walking a beach someday and comes across a stranded dolphin, what are they supposed to do and who do they contact? So if they can take a photograph, um, that'd be great. And then contact
2: Irish Whale and Dolphin Group. And then they'll contact me, especially if it's here in Eris, they'll contact me. And then there's a local group of volunteers. It's the Mayo Irish Whale and Dolphin Group. And those volunteers, they have like a kit bag packed. They, If they can get out of work or whatever they're doing, they're ready to come most of the time. Um, a group will form then and we'll help the dolphin. But we also need to see that it's a dolphin that can be refloated. N- not always is it right to, to put them back into sea and expect them to swim off because you do get cases where you have a very sick dolphin that comes in. We've had two actually this year. We've had two white-beaked dolphins, they're an offshore species and they came in within five or six months of each other and they were not suitable for refloat. They were severely sick, severely emaciated. Um, one came in on the west coast. So that's always an indicator when you have a dolphin coming in from deep water onto a beach on the west of the peninsula. It's, it's usually not by accident. It's weak and it's sick. And is there
1: anything somebody shouldn't do if they find a dolphin? There are different personalities. Some can
2: be more calm, but some can be very flighty and, and nervous, especially of humans. We're now walking up to them, and, and they can't swim away from us because they're completely helpless. So if, like when people start trying to drag them into the water and pull them by the tails, which is completely incorrect, or if the mother is too big to lift, to, to move, and I've heard of people lifting up the calves and taking the calves out to what, to deep water without the mother, they go into a panic. They can go into shock and shock is a massive killer. Shock can actually kill them. Um, And their skin is really, really delicate. It's, I always tell people, it's like an aubergine. You pick up an aubergine in the shop and you touch it. Like it's, it's that kind of texture. And if you did nick them with your nail, you know, you'll see scratches on them. Their skin can get damaged really easily. It can happen that people will pour water over the dolphin's head. Just as they're opening that blowhole, now you've got salt water going down into the lungs. That's why we always say stay away from the blowhole and keep protected. Part of the training is you cup your hands around it and then you pour water on their back, and that water then doesn't run.
3: Okay, my, uh, my name is Tom Hainahan. Uh So I was, I was born and reared here uh, within 100 metres of the beach. Uh, so my, my first experience or memory of uh, strandings here were back in the, the very late 50s. And uh, local people believed at the time that um, that the dolphins stranded because there may have been a sick dolphin in the pod, and other dolphins would shepherd it ashore and sacrifice their life, um, and that is so we never interfere with them. Only we buried them. And uh, right through the 60s and early 70s, I remember on probably half a dozen occasions having to bury dolphins here. Uh, sometimes up, I think the most ever in, in 69 was about 28 dolphins. Uh, so that was the belief that we never interfered with them and, and uh, I worked for a, a short number of years in, in, in the lighthouse service and it was a, a, a belief that was held all around the coast that these dolphins came ashore to shepherded a sick dolphin ashore and they should be left alone and that's what we used to do and for pu- public health reasons we would bury them on the beach
1: So did you bury 28 dolphins here? We
3: did indeed, yeah, yeah the lo- local, local people would get together for public health reasons and you would bury them on the beach yeah yeah, they come in when spring tides, they'd be very high on the beach, so it was a fairly simple operation to excavate shallow holes and just roll them into the holes. And that was it. From about, I would remember the first occasion, okay, about 59, when three or four dolphins come in, and, and right through the, the 60s, and, uh this continued to happen. And um, it was really only in, in the 80s <clears throat> that I remember um, people getting together and, and thinking, you mean, this wasn't right what we believed in and there was efforts being made to refloat them, and sometimes that was success- successful, and sometimes not. But um, until later years, when, when Jimma and these people came along, and uh, they make a huge effort. And probably they have saved probably hundreds of dolphins over the last 10 years on, on this beach alone. In my youth, we would have experienced possibly up to 10 strandings over, over a period of 10 years. Uh, sometimes you might got a couple of years, and some years would go by and there'd be none. Uh, but usually, usually you'd have a half a dozen, a dozen, and as I say, about one time twenty-eight, um, and uh, I think they would have expired within hour, hours of being spotted. Uh, we would have found them at, at the top of the tide. uh Some would have already been uh, um, dead, and within a couple of hours, they'd all, you mean, be in serious difficulty.
2: So the local group here have Mayo IWDG Facebook page. All the local groups have their own page. And that's where people can keep up to date with what's going on locally, what's come in, um, strandings and sightings as well. It's not, it's not all strandings. There's, many of the local groups wouldn't have any strandings, but they have some amazing sightings. So those people carry out headland watches and they record that data in the free, free reporting <coughs> app by Irish Whale and Dolphin. And that data is going back 30 years. There can be lots going on, but if nobody sees it or if nobody logs it, then that data isn't there. What's the name of the app? If you go to the App Store or the Google Store, just type in IWDG reporting app and it'll be the first one that comes up.
0: Joanna McNicholas reporting. What happens to a ship's captain who's been shipwrecked? Is there life afterwards? Well, Norman Freeman met one such captain in a far-off corner of the world.
4: When a ship is badly damaged or wrecked, the captain is usually held responsible. There are always inquiries, both by the marine authorities and the shipping company. If he gets the sack, the blot on his record may make it hard for him to find another job at sea. I've heard about a few men who never recovered from the disaster, went into decline, lost their spirit... However, I once came across a man who had weathered the storms of his seafaring life with remarkable humour and resilience. It was in Karachi, where our deck passenger ship was undergoing an overhaul. The searing summer heat was relentless. The sand blown in from the nearby desert got into our eyes and our teeth. What made the whole thing worse was that for much of the daylight hours we were within sight and sound of the Endless whining and rasping of a battered old dredger working in a channel nearby. The dripping chain of heavy iron buckets groaned and grated as they moved upwards endlessly. We couldn't keep the sound out of our ears any more than we could keep the sand out of our hair. Then one night in the bar of a seedy hotel, the second mate and I got talking to a fat, elderly Englishman. He was a jolly fellow, told jokes, laughed easily. His face was beetroot red, partly from the effects of sun and glare, and we reckoned something to do with the amount of alcohol he drank. It turned out that he was the captain of the dredger. He sat cheerfully in the bar every evening. I suppose he welcomed the company of other Europeans, as he spent all day trying to communicate with his Pakistani crew in a mixture of Urdu, Hindustani and English. We wondered what had brought him to this end. One night he told his story. He had once been master of a brand new cargo liner that was wrecked on her maiden voyage to the Far East. Leo Colombo, we got caught in a bloody cyclone, two in the morning. Couldn't see the coastal life, nothing. Then the bloody radar packed up. We went on the rocks just outside the port. There was no loss of life. The cyclone passed over quickly and they were rescued by the Sri Lankan Navy but the ship was pinioned on the rocks, a write-off. He was up before the board of directors at the company inquiry. He was being closely questioned. Then, according to himself, the chairman turned to him and said he was giving the impression that losing a brand-new ship had a humorous side to it. I knew then they were going to give me the sack, so I stood up and said, I'm resigning and you can all F off, and I walked out. He found it hard to get another job, but eventually got one as captain of a little steamer plying the coasts of Myanmar and Malaysia. That lasted several years until the steamer collided with another ship in the Irrawaddy River near Rangoon. He said, I got the sack again! So we ended up in this dirty old dredger. Some weeks afterwards, our overhaul completed, we set off for Chittagong, calling at Colombo on the way. As we approached that port, the second mate and I went out on the wing of the bridge. We focused our binoculars on the rusting hull of the ship our friend in Karachi had once commanded. It was a sad sight. But the second mate said, Look, if anything goes wrong in our lives, our careers, I hope we'll be able to handle the whole thing with the same spirit as that man.
0: Norman Freeman with echoes of Joseph Conrad's novel Lord Jim. Harry Herman is soon to step down as CEO of the Irish Sailing Association. He's been with the body which oversees sailing in Ireland for over 23 years. And when I spoke to him this week, he told me how sailing had developed in that time.
5: Yeah, the sport's changed dramatically. Uh, you know, in 23 years, the sporting landscape generally has changed. But sailing, the way it's managed and operated, the way people participate, um, it's its changed really quite extensively. Um, I've been been really lucky to have a really good team around me um, to kind of manage the change as it it came. But, uh, you know, on the sort of, well, what I'd call the negative side, there's a lot more... uh, paper and bureaucracy and uh you know all the gdpr and safeguarding and governance and all that kind of stuff which is which is all good stuff it all needs to be done but it creates an an awful lot more headache for everyone involved in the administration i'm not just talking about RSA, i'm talking about the clubs as well and the training centers um but on the positive side you know there are more opportunities now to go sailing than there have ever been um you know when i joined there were sixteen thousand members in forty-five clubs. Uh we've now got twenty-four thousand members in sixty-five clubs. So that's a fifty percent increase in that time, which is phenomenal. Um, I think the the clubs and the, the sport has, has grown in terms of uh its diversity. So sailing clubs are not just traditional sailing clubs coming down on Saturday afternoon, racing around the cans and going home again. Uh, they're a lot more diverse than that they 've started to introduce alternative activities uh and other water sports uh, and you 'll see in many clubs now you 've got kayaks uh, that are available uh some are doing stand up paddle boarding um some are windsurfing so there 's an awful lot more going on generally uh in the clubs which is which is a great thing you know it makes it more inclusive for everyone makes it easier for everyone to access. Um, and yeah, right now, the, the, the sport is in really good shape and looking healthy for the future.
0: You also have the sailing awards every year, both to clubs, to training centres and to individuals. Name an individual for me that stuck out for you in your time there that's got one of these awards.
5: You know, the obvious one is Annalise. Um, she's an absolute ambassador for sailing. Uh, her medal in Rio uh, was obviously spectacular. Uh, she's now a household name. Uh, which we've never had in sailing before. So, yeah, she's she's a standout ambassador for sailing and and someone who has done phenomenal um, work in terms of promoting the sport in a positive way and, and an accessible way by bringing it into households, which is uh, which has been hugely beneficial for us all.
0: We have other up and coming sailors, Olympic sailors Finn Lynch and Eve McMahon to name just two.
5: Yeah, I mean, Eve's had a phenomenal year this year. I I don't think anyone has uh, achieved the kind of success she's achieved uh, back-to-back gold medals uh, at, you know, world level. She's an 18-year-old who's sailing in a senior squad, which, again, is uh, very unusual in in high-performance sailing. Uh, Finn had an outstanding uh, start to the year, uh, and at the end of last year, obviously, the the silver medal in the Worlds, which she'd never achieved before, um, so yeah, our performance squads are are, are really delivering at the moment. Uh, at junior level this year, we've had the best uh, season in terms of medal success uh, in our history, uh, which is which is phenomenal. And that's really as a result of a lot of work uh, behind the scenes with our performance program, um, our work with Sport Ireland, and the Institute in terms of putting together a structure that helps to breed. Um, performance sailors for those sailors who, who who want to go down that route and uh, you know it's obviously not for everybody it's a pretty ruthless uh, system it has to be uh, to win a gold medal or to win any medal uh, at world level these days you, you you have to be very very committed um, and uh, in, in all sports so yeah it's a, it's a system that's, that's delivered success and is uh, set up to deliver further success in the future
0: because you identify these people at quite a young age you get them into your you you have a high performance unit but you you lead them into that you have paths into that system
5: yeah so i mean certainly that you know there are breed of, of, of youngster who is highly competitive um, and at the very young age the sort of optimist and topper age groups you know we're not looking for the the gold medal winners uh, in in those classes. We're looking for people with the right attitude and, and temperament who would be able to um, deliver on a on a pathway uh, as they grow older. Um, so the, at the very beginning, it's not all about it's not all about success at medals. It's about really getting a rounded individual um, and and teaching them um, you know how to how to perform as they as they grow older. But the flip side of that, uh, you know, and maybe one of the changes that has been slightly more, uh, well, it's certainly been a, a, a cause for discussion within Irish sailing is the move um, towards more recreational sailing. Um, you know, this, it's much more a, a family-orientated activity now than, you know, 20 years ago. It was very much sailing was all about racing uh, and sailing in clubs was was racing. Um, Whereas now we've really gone with the trend that, you know, not everyone wants to be a competitive sailor. Uh, There are a lot of people who just want to go out and have fun on the water with their family uh, on day sails on you know, picnics or or whatever they want to do. So we've had to adapt um, over the years to to cater for that. And and our training system has also adapted.
0: How do we guess the sailing industry as i'd call it to grow in this country if you compare us to the uk it is it's a vast business in the uk in france also a vast business with tens of thousands of boats how do we grow that industry in ireland
5: yeah that's a really good question um it's it's really a numbers game um you know we have twenty four thousand members in clubs there are uh, a lot more people than that participating in boats you know boating activity outside the club structures uh, but at the end of the day, you know, compared to um, the UK or France, we we have a fraction of the numbers who are participating. It's very much a minority sport in Ireland, whereas uh, you know in the UK and France, it's it's, it's one of the leading sports. So um, it's very hard for our industry to um, get critical mass of customers uh, to to buy the products. And also, that up until recently, they've been competing uh, abroad with um, boats coming in from the UK, but with Brexit, that's, that's sort of stopped now. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's something we, we'd like to do an awful lot more on. And, I, you know, my time in Irish sailing, I, I would have liked to have spent a lot more time trying to figure out how we can work more productively together with the industry uh, to help promote the sport and, and, again, you know, as I say, bring it into the household. I think there are an awful lot of opportunities uh, around our coastline. We, we we have some of the best coastline in the world. So, you know, we we all know that. Um, but I I would have loved to have seen more engagement uh, by government or more understanding of what the potential of of our coastline is and our inland waterways as well. Um, and I think that's that's played a, a quite a significant part in are in the restriction, if you like, of of our ability to grow the sport in a meaningful way.
0: We could have an awful lot more marinas around different parts of the country, but because the the difficulty with foreshore legislation, I understand that has slowed down an awful lot of people?
5: Yeah, I mean, the foreshore, there is a marine spatial plan which will help to uh, ease the burden of foreshore but certainly up until uh, this year when it was launched in fact uh, it's been something that has been a real barrier to any developer who wants to build a marina I mean you know anyone who is looking at a 10-year project before they'll get permission um, is is just not going to invest and that's been really really difficult for us to to try and encourage um, and then you know on top of that you've got all the environmental impact which again is all Good stuff that needs to be done, but it's it's time and expense uh, for again for any any developer. Um, so yeah, it, you know we we've grown the number of marinas and pontoons around the country um, exponentially. You know in the last 20 years, but still there's you know we could double it again and still not have enough facilities.
0: And the best of luck to Harry Herman on his life after the Irish Sailing Association. And that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme is podcast. It's on our website, rt.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me on the programme, the email is seascapes at rt.ie. If you're anywhere on or near the water over the next week, stay safe. And Seascapes is presented and produced by Fergal Keane.